Well, good morning, everyone. <clears throat> Merry Christmas, belated. I didn't get to say Merry Christmas to many of you, so uh, Merry Christmas. I hope you had a, a great uh, Christmas day, a uh, time with family, I hope, and a uh, time with dear ones. It's a, it's a unique time of year, and um, so we, we enjoy that, of course, as a, as a family. And Eva Claire, is, is, uh, she was really finally able to really enjoy the wrapping paper this year. She wasn't too stoked about the gifts that were inside, but she really enjoyed the massive mound of wrapping paper. And so we had a, a, a great uh, Christmas time together and got to be with family and whatnot. And uh, I, hope, uh, I hope you all got to be here for the Christmas Eve service uh, that we had the other night. I, th- I thought it was wonderful. I love singing Christmas hymns, Christmas carols. And I find that at, at, at Christmas Eve, people tend to sing louder. And so that means that I can sing louder and, and enjoy myself more because it drowns me out. And uh, um, it's better for all if everyone else sings loud too. And uh, during that time, uh, Bill Kristoff preached and um, I was sitting right over there and, and really enjoyed it. And if you, if you didn't get to hear that, you really missed out. It was a great message and it was a, a powerful case for the gospel, for the true hope of the gospel, not just the wishful thinking of so many other worldviews. And so I hope you got to hear that. And so Bill did such a great job. And since I, um, you know, was preaching today, I just stole his message and I'm going to try and do my best to give it back to you. Uh, Actually, I'm not going to do that because Bill's here and he would totally call me out on that. (laughs) But um, I, I, I am preaching on the same passage. And uh, unless Bill stole that from me, I don't know how I didn't steal that from him. I think really what it is, is the Lord has something in that passage for us this Christmas season. And so we're going to be in in first Peter chapter one, looking at verses three through five. And and uh, Bill preached on that. And the whole time I was cheering and amening and thinking, what do I have to add? I'm not sure. (laughs) And so he, he did such a great job on that. Uh, you missed out if you didn't get to hear that. But uh, I think what, what the Lord is saying to us is that he, he wants us to hear something. He wants us to get some message from this passage. And uh, so it's, it's my goal for us to be able to do that today. So uh, as we head into it, why don't I uh, go to the Lord in prayer and we'll, uh, we'll trust him with this. Lord, we uh, come to you this morning and thank you for this season. Lord, we thank you that we have a, uh, a celebration this time of year where we we bring to mind, we recall, and we celebrate the fact that you sent your son as a little baby to be born into this world and, and uh, to uh, grow up and, and be a man uh, uh, tempted like us and living life like us only without sin. And that you uh, did that uh, for the purpose of sending him to the cross, that he could bear the punishment that, uh, that my sin deserves, that I could be forgiven, that I could be Uh, counted righteous in your eyes because of what he's done when I put my faith in him. And so uh, Christmas is is a special time of year, and we thank you for it. Lord, as we come this morning, a couple days after Christmas, and we want to look at a a different gift, and we want to look at a a different aspect of of our relationship with Jesus and what he's done and will do for us, Lord, I pray that you, by your Spirit, would work on our hearts. Lord, we, uh, we did a lot of stuff this past week, and we've got a lot of things coming up, and th- those things can be distracting, whether they're, whether they're positive or whether they're negative. They can be distracting, and they can, they can come in, and they can, they can wrestle in our minds for, uh, for our attention. So I pray, Lord, that you would help us to set those things aside. I pray that we would be right here 
and right now, that we would be engaged with your word, that you by your spirit would be working in our hearts to speak to us. Lord, I pray that you would speak to us this morning. Father, we look to you, we wait for you, and we seek to give you glory this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, we're going to be looking at First Peter chapter 1 this morning. And in order to set that up, I kind of want to glance forward a little bit in the book to First Peter chapter 3. And how about I turn there in my Bible? That'd be a good thing. So First Peter 3. And uh, if you're using the Pew Bible in front of you, it's on page uh, 1016. And by the way, if you don't have a Bible, those Pew Bibles there are yours to take. And uh, it, it's, a, it's a good Bible, and uh, just take that with you. You can underline, you can take that home with you, do whatever. And as you're looking up our passage this morning, it's, in, it's on page 1016. And uh, at least uh, chapter 3 and verse 15 is. And, and uh, I, I want to read this for us, chapter 3 and verse 15. Many of you have this memorized, and, uh, and I memorized it years ago and still have it in there somewhere. But in your hearts, regard Christ the Lord as holy always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, etc. But uh, I, I've always thought about that, and Bob Burroughs made me memorize that years and years ago, as he, as he did many of you, I'm sure. And so I memorized that verse, and, and out of obedience to that verse, you know, I've, I've done some study to try and think of uh, good reasons, good explanations, good defenses for the gospel if someone were to ask me, and, and I, could, I could, you know, kind of defend the gospel and present it well and, and whatnot. And so I got my defenses ready, and then I'm sitting there waiting. And what am I waiting for? In this passage, what am I waiting for? I'm, wait, I'm waiting for somebody to come and ask me about the hope that's in me, Right? And, uh, and, and so the, the, out of obedience to the first part, you know, I've prepared a defense, I've prepared reasons and, and answers and, and all that kind of stuff and, and have kind of been left waiting for someone to come up and say, Hey, Brennan, tell me about that hope that's in you. Right. And I've had people ask me all manner of questions, but never that exact question. Right. And uh, of course I don't have to just sit on my answers. I can take the gospel to other people, etc. But there's an expectation that Peter seems to have in this verse that that people will see something in us enough to want to come and ask, what's different about you? And I, and I wonder how often that has happened in your life, that someone has come and asked, what's different about you? What's, why are you happy in an unhappy circumstance? Why do you seem to have hope when no one else seems to have hope? Why aren't you dragged down by this circumstance or by this situation or by this relationship like the rest of us? And so I wonder how often we've had that situation where our hope has been visible enough to other people that they would come and ask questions about it. Well, that's what I want to look at this morning. I want to look at what kind of hope that is, what kind of hope it is that people might look at us and see and want to come and ask questions. We've been going through this series throughout the month of of December, and we've been talking about the gift, right? Of course, leading up to Christmas time, we're talking about the gift of Jesus, right? And God planned it beforehand, and then you know it's it's un, it's unmatched and it's it's pristine and it's a beautiful gift that we have in Jesus, right? Well, now Christmas is done a couple of days ago, right? So we're looking forward a little bit more, and so we're looking to a future gift that He's going to give us. And so, uh, what is this gift? And and I, I want us to dig into the gift and the hope that comes with it, and all of that. So we're back. Uh, flip back one page to First Peter chapter one. 
And uh, we're going to go over these verses, verses 3, 4, and 5. And again, these, these are the ones that Bill preached on uh, so well the other night. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And so first of all, I want to talk about a living hope, the gift of living hope that we run across in these verses. I love how it says there, uh, blessed be the God and Father, Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope, a living hope, not just a, not a dead hope, not a dusty hope, not a, not a quiet hope, but a living hope, one that's, one that's alive and it's vibrant and it's active in your life and it's visible and it moves you to do things and it moves you to stay away from things. It's a, a living kind of hope and we're going to look more at that. But first of all, we see that the source of that hope is God's mercy. The source is God's mercy. According to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again. According to God's mercy... We don't merit God's favor. What, what do we merit from God? We merit his judgment. We merit his judgment. He's, he's infinitely holy. And here we are, a fallen people. And, and we choose sin, and we have sin rooted deeply in us. And so we're, we merit God's judgment. But he doesn't act according to that. According to this passage right here, he acts according to his mercy. His mercy toward us. And so instead of uh, showing judgment, he withholds that judgment. And he gives us uh, something that we don't deserve. He gives us favor instead of that judgment that we do deserve. And so uh, that's God's mercy. He's acting toward us. This also tells us that the source, uh, the cause of this hope um, and his mercy, excuse me, it tells us that he's the cause of this hope and he's the source of the mercy. God is the cause of the hope. God is the one who gives the hope. God is the source of our mercy. And this is a, this is a distinction that's but, uh, something different. And Bill mentioned this too. Something different between biblical Christianity and any other worldview or any other world religion is that we don't bank on our having climbed the ladder. We don't bank on what we've done. We bank on God's mercy toward us. Everything is dependent upon his mercy. And, and when, I, when I truly bank on his mercy, I don't get any of the glory for that. I don't get any of the credit for that. Kind of sounds like Ephesians 2, right? I don't, I don't get to boast at all because what am I dependent upon or what am I looking towards and what am I looking for? Well, I'm looking at, at his mercy, God's mercy, and if we think about the fact that God shows us his mercy, he does that not because he needed to, not because he needed relationship with us, certainly not because we deserve it, but out of his free choice, he chooses to show mercy toward us. And we just benefit from that. And so out of that, our response is not good job, Brennan, for choosing him. It's amazing God who would show me grace. We respond with, with joy and worship towards him. 
Well, we see the source is God's mercy, and it results in our new birth. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. That new birth is only mentioned a couple times in the Bible, but it's, it's obvious that it's something that God does. He creates in our life when he causes us to be born again. He regenerates us, if you want to use that word. He, he, he puts life where there did not used to be life. He, he takes you from a state of being dead and makes you alive. He causes you to be born again. You were spiritually dead and now you're spiritually alive. And this isn't the same as just turning over a new leaf. I remember before I was a believer and I would hear about born again Christians and I had no idea what that meant, but probably it was just those who had made a decision to, you know, try something new in their life or made a decision that this is what they were going to do. And it's like turning over a new leaf, but that's not the way the Bible talks about it at all, right? If we, if we look at the way the apostle John talks about it in first John chapter three, he refers to it as passing out of death and into life. That's the new birth out of death and into life. Or even in the Old Testament, when we look at the prophet Ezekiel in chapter 36 and and, uh, verse 26, he refers to the same thing when he quotes God as saying, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, a heart that's responsive. A heart of stone, you could chisel a heart of stone and it, you know, even make it the right size and shape and everything. And, but it would never do the job of giving life, of sustaining life because it's dead and it's unresponsive. And God says, I'm going to take that stone heart that you have and I'm going to give you a responsive and beating and tender and sensitive heart from me. And so God causes us to be born again. And again, that's, that's the working of his mercy. It's him deciding to work and change our lives. And it's interesting. I remember sharing the gospel with uh, my baseball coach, actually, my senior year of, of high school, sharing the gospel with him. And we were trying to talk with him about the gift of grace from God and that, that, that what we do is trust in Christ. We turn from our sin and we turn toward Christ. And, and that's all that was involved. And his response was, well, I, I, I kind of need to get my life in order first. And, and we couldn't make him understand that really God causes change from the inside out. It's not the other way around. You don't, you don't get your life into conformity and then all of a sudden you've made yourself uh, a, a, a likely home for God or a, a place that he would want to live. It's exactly the opposite. He invades and he comes in and we are not good and our life is not in order and he causes change from the inside out. And so it's a completely different view of things. And so God's work of mercy results in our new birth. And, and you'll see here in First Peter that as we keep on reading, uh, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Our hope is connected with his resurrection. And as I got to studying this, I kind of was wishing I could do an entire sermon just on this, which, you know, Easter's coming, so that will probably happen. But the, the hope that we have is almost always in the New Testament connected with the resurrection of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus. I mean, for some reason, nowadays, when we talk about the gospel and we talk about Jesus, we tend to talk about the cross more than we talk about the resurrection. We kind of throw the resurrection in because we know it's true. We know it's vastly important, but we tend to focus and kind of major on his death for us. 
But when you read in the New Testament, it doesn't seem to be that way. They were astounded and they were amazed by the resurrection. And that's what gave them hope was that God raised Jesus from the dead. And so you see again and again and again throughout, not just first Peter, for sure in first Peter, but throughout the entire New Testament that our hope is connected with the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And just a little bit of background for those of you who are not, um, you know, super up on what's going on in first Peter. First Peter was, uh, Peter wrote this to, to a people who were undergoing persecution in their lives. They were dealing with, with great difficulty and people coming against them and the threat of persecution and the reality of persecution. And so their, their lives were very different than ours. We're, we're, we're relatively comfortable and we don't usually have to deal with, you know, real kinds of persecution. We might have some harsh words said, or we might have something a little bit stronger, but, uh, in his day, the, the people he were, he was writing to were very, uh, vulnerable and they knew that vulnerability. And so when Peter writes to them and he talks about this hope because of a Jesus who was resurrected, when their very lives were in danger, how much more encouraging would the resurrection of Jesus be if you knew that, that your own death, because of your faith, premature death, was imminent, was possible, it could very likely happen. And so Peter writes about the resurrection to give hope that, yeah, you may die for your faith, but God raised Jesus from the dead and he will raise you from the dead too. And there's real hope in there. There's a hope that maybe doesn't resonate with us quite the same usually in our circumstances. And it, it had a special power for his hearers. And Paul talked about the same thing, about this resurrection, the connection between the resurrection of Jesus and the hope that we have when he was writing in Romans chapter 6. He said, if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. And so the hope of resurrection, the hope of life after death is powerful. And Paul says it again in 1 Corinthians 15, for as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. And so we live in a life where we are in the process of dying, even if we are in the most peaceful and the best circumstances. We're in the process of aging and dying. And there is a hope beyond that, and that hope is in Jesus. And it's a living hope, and it's a, a hope that should shape our lives and should shape our decisions. And we're going to talk a little bit more about how exactly that works. But this connection between this living hope and the resurrection of Jesus, we see again and again in the Bible. So the first piece of this astounding gift from God is a living and vibrant hope. But of course, that's not all there is. It's a, it's a, a certain hope of a heavenly inheritance, a certain hope of a heavenly inheritance. So as we continue reading in our passage here, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So this, this heavenly inheritance is something very special. Uh, Peter says that it's, it's imperishable, it's uh, undefiled and unfading. It's a, it's a very unearthly inheritance. 
I don't know how many of you have received an inheritance or are leaving an inheritance or, uh, of course, have read about inheritances or whatever. But those that happen on earth, an inheritance that's given on earth, especially if it's a sum of money or whatever, it's, it's liable to be taxed, right? Or could be devalued, right? Or if it's a thing, it could be stolen, right? Or if you've got, you know, other ambiguities about the way you're leaving it, the people you leave it to might fight with one another and, and end up kind of destroying this inheritance that you give. And that's not the kind of inheritance that he's talking about here. This is the kind of inheritance that Jesus talks about in Matthew 6. Matthew 6, and verse 20, he says, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. It's a protected, it's special. It's, it's not going to devalue. Inflation won't affect it and the government won't come and tax it and your neighbor won't steal it and nothing's going to make it rot or melt or waste. It's an unearthly, unearthly inheritance. I remember, uh, again, my, when I was a brand new believer, it was my baseball season of my senior year and I, I have very clear recollections of a couple different different instances of standing on the baseball field in very tense circumstances, you know, sports-related tension is not quite the same as the rest of life-related tension, but sports-related tension, when I was 18, it felt relatively tense. And so I'm I'm in this situation, and I remember, uh, for example, we were playing in Hawthorne, I don't know why, playing in Hawthorne, and uh, I was coming up to, to bat, and it was the seventh inning, two down, I was the last batter, and we were getting, you know, clobbered, and... um and I was coming up to the plate and I remember just looking at the clouds and being reminded of my inheritance in heaven. Brand new inheritance that I had just learned about. I was a brand new Christian. And I remember thinking, this is a baseball game. Who really cares? I'm, I'm going to heaven when I die. I've got things to learn about in heaven. I've got, you know, things to, to enjoy. And ex- I get to be with God and know what he's really like in heaven. Who cares if I... If I strike out, it doesn't really matter because my inheritance in heaven is real and it's lasting and it's unearthly. And by the way, I got a base hit, so that'll teach him. That's right. 25 years ago or whatever. (laughs) But my inheritance was in heaven and it made a real difference in my heart. It made a real difference where I was. It wasn't some meditation thing that I was trying to calm myself down, but it did calm me down. Because I was thinking, you know what, this baseball thing, this stuff that's going on, even if it's much more significant things that are going on in my life in this world, pale in comparison to that glorious inheritance. And it changes the way you look at things. It even changed the way an 18-year-old kid looked at things. It's glorious. So our heavenly inheritance is by definition unearthly and therefore it's not vulnerable to the forces that ruin Uh, earthly inheritances that's not all though peter also says um, we and this inheritance are being guarded by divine power being guarded by divine power look what he says there been born again to an inheritance that is imperishable undefiled and unfading kept in heaven for you who by god's power are being guarded god is actively at work in us to guard us to guard that inheritance for us. We were being guarded by his power. Now it's interesting the way he says it here. Being guarded uh, who by God's power, verse 5, are being guarded through faith. 
for a salvation ready to be revealed. Being guarded. So by God's power, we are being guarded through faith. So you've got a couple of different things that are working on us. You've got God's power working on us. And then you've got faith working on us. And the result, of course, is that we are protected. And that means that that the, the salvation is secure. But we've got those two things working. How does that work? Which is it that guards us? Which is it that protects us, Peter? You said both. You said the power of God is working. And you said that, that our faith is working to protect us, to keep us, to keep us guarded in, to keep us locked into that salvation. Well, it's not an either or question. Biblically speaking, even the faith that we have, if we look back at Ephesians chapter 2, even the faith that we have is God working in us. It's a gift from Him. And so God's power is working through the means of our own faith as we trust in God. And He encourages that trust. And He locks us into that faith. And so we continue to trust Him and He continues to work. And we trust Him because of His work in our lives. So it's not as if I have to generate this faith. I have to figure out what the formula is, press all the right buttons or do the right things to have this faith, to gen, to gen up this faith so that I'm locked in with God. No, God himself is at work, even in my own faith, to keep me locked into this salvation. If you doubt me, flip back to Ephesians chapter 2. Even if you don't doubt me, flip back to Ephesians chapter 2. I've referred to these verses a couple of times. Ephesians chapter 2, starting at verse 8. And again, this is on page 976 if you're using a pew Bible. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. Not as a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in him. That piece I want to look at though there is for by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's a gift of God. So even, even our trusting in Him, that whole process, there's a gift from God, and that locks us in. And that makes it so Peter can say here in chapter 1 that you are being guarded by divine power and through your faith. God is working in that to keep us. And so the result is we are guarded. We are protected. We are locked in. We are locked in, which brings us to this uh, point C here, our salvation, which is secure, a secure salvation. Listen one more time to the great assurance in Peter's words. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. There is a lot of assurance in there. There is a lot of security in there. There, there, there are a lot of amazing things that God himself is doing in there. And the result, the meaning for us is that our salvation is completely secure. The God of the universe himself, the one who created all things, the one who sustains all things, planets, distant galaxies, everything. He keeps everything working and he himself is working to secure your own salvation, your inheritance by his 
power. There's confidence and there's hope and there's joy and there's peace in that, that God is at work to accomplish that. What what greater security could you possibly have? There's nothing more secure. There is no greater security than that. Think of how great a gift this is. We, you know, we just celebrated Christmas and, and we got, you know, things for our kids and, and, uh, toys even and toys. And when you use them, what happens? The battery dies, which is a great and glorious thing when the battery dies on a lot of those things. <laughs> we, you know, we used to, we used to tell our kids that, sorry, you know, once the batteries are dead, that, that's, that's it. And then the next year, what we would do instead of buying a new toy is just buy new batteries. And they thought it was wonderful because they got their gift back, right? But your gifts, your gifts that you give, they break down, right? Gabriel got this special little car and a wheel fell off already. I think, ah, so we're super gluing that thing back on. But this gift that we're talking about here doesn't break down. It doesn't fall apart. The batteries don't die. You don't lose a piece of it right? It continues to work. It never breaks. It never spoils. It never becomes vulnerable to devaluation, right? Imagine if I had given you gifts of, you know, rubles or right now Canadian dollars, right? If I gave you 10 Canadian dollars, you'd think, oh, great, 10 Canadian dollars. Well, it's worth like seven bucks, right? And then in a few weeks, it might be worth less, you know, things are subject to devaluation or theft or whatever, and not so with God's gift. Not so. It is locked in. Its value is secure. And your possession of it in Christ are secure. What Christmas gift could you have possibly given or received this year that can compare with that? No matter how much you thought about what gift you wanted to give, and and some of you really think long and hard about what gift you're going to give because you want it to be just right, you know, and you shopped at the right place, or even comparison shops so that you get the right price, you got the right brand, you got the right size or whatever for this person you're buying for, you get the perfect gift. But of course, it's not perfect. But this gift that we're looking at here is perfect. There is no gift that we could get that could compare with that. But this gift you can have for yourself. And this is... I want to take a moment here and pause and talk about I've been talking about this gift and about this inheritance as if we are all going to receive this inheritance. And, and I don't know that that's the case. We talk to a room this size. There are usually people present who who are not uh, receiving this inheritance right now. And so this gift, this perfect gift that God offers, you can have. It can be yours and it doesn't require some hoops that you jump through. It doesn't require that you pass an interview with me or that you pass a test or that you do certain things in order. There's no ladder to climb. The gift is yours in Christ. What it takes is realizing that that you are destitute without it. Realizing that before a holy God, you are nothing but guilty. And though you may like yourself and though your friends may like you before God, you're guilty. And you're eternally guilty. And that's why God sent his son who lived a perfect life and was not guilty, always obeyed the father. And yet he went to the cross to pay the penalty that you owe. And he died in your place. And then God showed that he accepted that payment when he raised Jesus from the dead and took him back to be with the father. And the Bible says, if you will trust in him, we, we read earlier in our responsive reading from John chapter 1, 
As many as received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And so that gift is yours for the taking. If you will turn from your own sin, and if you will look to Jesus, that gift can be yours, and it can be locked in as secure as we've been talking about. That gift is yours. And, and, and I know there are some people here who've heard this a lot, and for some reason either they don't understand it or don't really want it. But I, I pray that even right now that you would turn from your own sin, that you would turn from your own pride, and that you would put your faith in Christ. And that you could be made whole, that you would receive His perfect record for yourself. That you would trust solely in Him, and that He would make you new. That He would give you that new birth, that He would take that heart of stone that you have, and He'd give you a heart of flesh that would be responsive. And so that's my prayer for you right now. And there are some maybe who've never heard this or maybe never understood it. And it's that simple. That's really what it's about, is that exchange where you get to look to Jesus and he takes your sin upon himself and instead he gives you forgiveness. He gives you his own righteousness so that when you stand before God, God sees you as righteous and as holy because of what Jesus did. It's that simple. And so that's the gift that he offers. And that's the gift that we've been talking about. This inheritance is eternity with God himself. Eternity with God himself. And, and sometimes when you hear people talk about that, they kind of think, well, it sounds kind of boring, actually. What are you going to do? Do you, you know, do you, are you going to play football games? You know, what, what are you going to do in heaven that's going to keep you entertained for eternity, Right. But as we get to know God more and as we read the Bible more and we learn more of what he's like, we learn how wonderful he is. And we learn also that there is so much about him that we don't know. And all of a sudden, heaven starts becoming more and more appealing because we get to be with that wonderful creator of the universe, our God and our Savior forever. And it's more appealing the more we learn about him. It's not like there's a limited quantity of stuff that you can know about God. And once you've learned that, you're all done. And then now, you know, there's nothing really left for you. God is infinite. And as we walk with him in our relationship, we get to know him better. And the better we get to know him, the more we want to know about him. And that's what, that's what heaven is, being with him forever. And let's look finally here at the gift of Jesus' second coming, the gift of his second coming. And, and um, I, I, I put this on there. Uh, I had one motivation to begin with, and the more I studied this, the more I realized the New Testament is consumed with this concept of Jesus coming back. They were amazed by it. They were, they were stunned by it. And so uh, you can read um, point A there is his, the blessed appearing, right? It's another aspect of this future gift. Of course, in the future, in, in eternity, our inheritance, we're going to be with God in heaven. Right. And we, we kind of picture that and it's not going to be us sitting on clouds with harps. Right. There's going to be a new heavens and a new earth. And God is actually going to be ruling and and we'll be there with him and all that kind of stuff. But uh, but it's not just heaven that we're thinking about. It's his own appearing. It's when he comes back. And the more you read the New Testament, the more you look into this, the more you see that this idea of Jesus return captivated them. It was in their minds. They were thinking about it. It was in their conversation. It shows up in their letters that they wrote to each other. It's very, very important to them. Paul talks about it in Titus chapter 2. Paul calls it waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior. Paul was passionate about it. 
New Testament believers were passionate about this. It governed their decisions and it informed their lives. It was a blessed appearing. It was also imminent. It could happen at any time. They were expecting it at any moment. And of course, Jesus was adamant that uh, no one uh, knows exactly when he will come back, but that it could be at any time. And you could, uh, he, he says there, even the Revelation chapter 22 and verse 20, the first part there, he says, surely I'm coming soon. So Jesus himself said he's coming soon, right? So it could be at any moment. We just don't know when. It's imminent. And of course, there are several parables when you read Jesus teaching on earth about it, where he's talking about blessed is the servant who's ready when the master shows up, not beating the other servants or not stealing stuff or not taking a nap, but the one who is awake and ready, blessed is that servant. For example, Luke chapter 12, verses 35 through 40. This is what Jesus says. Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table and he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch or in the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready for the son of man is coming at an hour when you do not expect That's how I want to be ready. I want to be ready for Jesus' return in that way, that if he comes in the second watch or the third watch in the wee hours of the morning in the time when you're least likely to be awake and prepared and ready for him to return, I want to be ready at that time. I want to be ready at any moment for his return. And it's not like waiting for his imminent return is a duty, right? Oh, well, I guess, you know, pastor said today we got to wait for Jesus' return, so I guess we should do that, right? waiting to be reunited with our savior, the one who took our sin upon himself, the one who, who went to die in our place. That's the one we're waiting for. Can you wait to meet him? I can't wait to meet him. I can't wait to see him face to face. I can't wait to be in his presence. It's not a duty. In the new Testament, they looked forward to it with eager anticipation. They had a joy and a, and a, and a hope when they thought about his return. New Testament, Believers looked forward so eagerly to Christ's return because he was the source and the object of all of their hope in a hopeless world. Remind you again about the audience that Peter was writing to. Persecution. Don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal. Don't don't be amazed that you're suffering like this. They were suffering. They were undergoing some stuff, right? And so Peter writes his epistle to them. They were undergoing hardship, persecutions. And in that kind of a context, a living hope makes sense. A living hope. When things are going grand, when things are going super well, a living hope doesn't make as much sense. But when you see struggle, when you see hardship, and many of you have seen struggle and have seen hardship and see it right now, a living hope makes sense. John also wrote the book of Revelation to a group of Christians who were suffering and they were undergoing persecution. And the book of Revelation is to prepare them to undergo that persecution. And so what does he say at the end? After Jesus said, I am coming quickly, John says, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. I had a conversation with uh, an acquaintance of mine who had undergone impossible hardship. And we were talking about the Lord's coming. And I noticed in myself 
a little bit of a pause about how excited I was for Jesus to come back. And this person was right on it immediately. Right now, right now, Lord, right now. I want it right now. Come now. I'm done suffering. I'm done dealing with this. And that's the proper perspective to have. In our family, we pray for Pastor Saeed, the pastor who is in Iran. He's an American. He's in prison, has been for a number of years now. He has a wife and two kids who live in Idaho. And, uh, and he's there purely because of persecution. And so we, we pray for him regularly, and we pray for other persecuted Christians around the world regularly. And I imagine, as I was praying, we were praying on Christmas Eve, and uh, we were reading through a little book together and praying together as a family. And I was thinking about Pastor Saeed. It would have been the wee hours of the morning in Iran, Christmas morning, freezing, beaten, bruised, getting very poor medical treatment. And it's Christmas morning. And my family snuggled together warm on the couch. Nothing wrong with being snuggled together warm on the couch. But I thought for Pastor Saeed, this living hope would have power. Imagine how he wants Jesus to return. Now, Lord, now, now, I don't want to go another minute without my family. I don't want to go another minute suffering like this. Now, Lord, I want to be with you now. It would have different power. And of course, his perspective is the better perspective than mine, than mine that kind of waits because there's some stuff I'd really like to accomplish before you get back, Lord. There are some things I'd like to see, Lord, before you come back, some things I'd like to do as if those things are significant or relevant in light of being in Jesus' presence. They're not. At the end of his life, the Apostle Paul said that the crown of righteousness will be given to all who have loved his appearing. So 2 Timothy chapter 4, to all who have loved his appearing. I love that. I love that passage. In many ways, loving his appearing is the core of the Christian life. It means he's our greatest treasure, and we can think of nothing more important than being in his presence. This passionate priority keeps us from sin. If we were, if we were loving his appearing, it would keep us from sin. Because we don't want any lesser thing or pleasure to come between us and our top priority, who is Jesus. Nothing. What else do we want to come in between there? Nothing. If we thought this way, we would be so excited about seeing our greatest treasure face to face and at any second that we wouldn't even want to waste the time that it takes to sin, much less do the thing that's offensive to him. You see that? That's powerful. If we wait for him in that way, if we long for his return, if we're eagerly anticipating, expecting, looking forward to, can't wait for Jesus to return, it would change the way we think. If we had the imminent return of Christ on our minds and in our prayers more, we would be much more motivated to take the good news of the gospel to unbelievers around us because it could be at any moment. And we want it to be at any moment. And I want you to come with me. And I want you to come with me. It would motivate us to take the gospel to them so that they could have a chance to be reconciled to God before it's too late. Imagine how that would change the face of our evangelism. That conversation you've been putting off, yeah, I'll talk to him when the time is just right or, or when things aren't quite so tense or when I figure out how to do it or, or it would change our evangelism. It would give an urgency to it. This teaching is a, a challenge to me and it's a challenge to us. What are the things that we 
that we do that demonstrate that we would really rather that Jesus took his time in returning because I've got this thing to do or I really want to see this happen first as if that's more important than Jesus and being in his presence or do we really passionately want the Lord to return right now so that we can be with him our greatest treasure immediately immediately Can we say with the Apostle John from the bottom of our hearts, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. I want that to be my passion. And I want that to be our passion. That we would so long for His return that it would change the way we look at life, the way we think about the gospel, the way we think about unbelievers around us, the way we think about temptation, the way we think about the priorities in our lives. That we would so long to be with Him, our greatest treasure. That's my desire, and that's my prayer for us. I really think this is right at the the heart of walking with Jesus. We want to be with him, and I want to be with him. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would come soon. Lord, I pray that you would captivate us in our hearts, that we would truly see the value of walking with you, the value, the joy of knowing you face to face when you come, that we would long for that, that we would would think truly about our lives and about our sin and about the forgiveness that we have in Christ and that we would so look forward to seeing you face to face, that it would govern everything that we do, all the plans that we make, all of the decisions that we make, all of the things we undertake in our lives, all of the relationships that we have, the words that we speak, the things that we read, the things that we watch, the way we live our lives, that that we would be governed with an expectation, with a desire to see you now and now, imminently, Immediately, Lord, I pray that you would do that. I pray that that you would work in us to change us that way. Work in me to change me that way, Lord, that I would long for your presence that way, that I would understand truly and rightly and accurately and clearly that there is nothing that compares to that. Motivate me that way, Lord. Thank you for that, that gift, that gift that we will have when we see you face to face. Thank you for the gift of eternity with you that is being guarded by you. The power of God is guarding that for me. I praise you for that. Lord, as we go out, don't don't let us forget this. Remind us when we're eating lunch and when we're uh, doing anything else today or tomorrow as as we encounter hardship or difficulty or temptation. Help us to think clearly about the return of Jesus and about the true value of being in your presence. Pray that you would do this by your spirit. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. God bless you. You are dismissed.